up to James chapter 4, if the wind will allow you to do such a thing this morning. It is, it is picked up since we got out here, so... chapter 4. Well, it's not hard uh, today or even this week to look around in the world, to see the news, and find lots of things to be frustrated with. You know, when you, when you see any number of things, month after month, year after year, in the world, the broader culture happening, it seems like There's no doubt about it, right? We've been changed. We've been transformed to the core of our being. And now we have the God-given ability to do what is right and to want the right things and pursue the right things. We have a new heart. But with that new heart, now we find ourselves in an intense struggle. 
to want the right things, to think the right things, and to do the right things day after day. And I think it's easy to be frustrated with the problems out there and to forget the brokenness and the rebellion that, that are still in my heart, in here. And the fact that the brokenness in my heart actually contributes to the problem. It's part of the problem in the broader culture because I'm a part of this culture. And so I'm messing things up as I respond sinfully to events and as I think the wrong things and as I do the wrong things. And sometimes I think it, it can be easy to put all of our efforts into fighting the sin out there instead of aggressively and intentionally putting to death the sin that still lives and moves in our own hearts. We get our perspective skewed and our attention focused on everyone else rather than considering what, what is still messing things up and breaking relationships and causing problems in my own heart and in my own personal life, my own community. One of the amazing truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that through the gospel of Christ, you and I can come face to face with the brokenness that resides in here with the rebellion and the sinfulness that's still here. And we can come face to face with that, and we can honestly acknowledge it. And we don't have to sort of ignore it and put it aside. We can honestly acknowledge it, and we can bring it to Christ and deal with it and address it and grow. And the way we do that, the way we honestly address it, and the way we continue to grow is through repentance. That's the word. And so if following Jesus is a lifelong journey, if it's something that you enter into and it continues throughout your entire life and you're making progress and you're growing and you're changing, you're on this journey, then every single day of that journey should include repentance to some extent. It should include acknowledging the sinfulness in my own heart, bringing it to the Lord, confessing it and receiving his grace and acknowledging the forgiveness that is offered through him and then wanting the right things, turning from my sin and desiring to be holy and whole and walk in wisdom in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an acknowledgement that I'm not home yet and I'm not perfected and I don't have it all together. And so I need growth. And the pathway to growth is through this biblical concept of repentance. This is the daily practice of turning. That's the heart of the idea of repentance. It's turning from sin and to God. Here's how one author, Eugene Peterson, described this. Repentance, the first word in Christian immigration, right? I love that, Christian immigration. We're on a journey headed to a new country. Our new citizenship is found there, and we're on that journey. And the first word in that journey is repentance. Repentance, the first word in Christian immigration, sets us on the way to traveling in the light. It is a rejection that is also an acceptance, a leaving that develops into an arriving, a no to the world that is a yes to God. Now, I, I want to be clear with you this morning that 
the Christian life begins with repentance. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You turn from sin and you turn in faith to God. And you cannot have true faith without repentance. You can't have real repentance without true faith. They're two sides of the same coin. And the Christian life begins with repentance and faith. But the Christian life this week for you will continue with repentance and faith. The repentance and faith that you exercise this week won't save you. You don't need salvation again to be born again, again. But the method and the pathway to continuing to grow in your Christian life is repentance and faith. You don't repent of your sins once at the beginning and then sort of throw that concept and that practice out the window. Many of you would be familiar with Martin Luther, who was the, the founder of the Protestant Reformation. And he posted, the whole thing started in 1517 when he posted these 95 theses on the door of a church. And he had no idea what he was starting. He was just honestly looking for discussion because he saw some problems in the church. And I don't know if you've ever read those 95 theses, but here is the very first point that he put on those 95 theses. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The whole thing, from the first step in the journey until you arrive in heaven, is to be one of continual repentance. And in Luther's case, Luther saw the significant problems in the Catholic Church. And he saw the problems of this whole system of penance and indulgences that the Catholic Church was promoting. And you could buy forgiveness for a particular sin. And so you would just sin and then you would give your money to buy an indulgence for that, to get rid of that sin. And so as Luther read his Bible, he saw that repentance begins the Christian life and repentance sustains and grows the Christian life. The progress that you make is by turning from sin and turning in faith to Christ over and over again. And so today I'd like to make the case for you from James chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 10 specifically, but really from this whole passage, that the regular practice of repentance is vital for acquiring wisdom. In order to grow towards spiritual maturity and to grow in wisdom, the, the practice, the regular practice of repentance and understanding this concept needs to be part of our Christian lives and what we're doing. And so keep in mind, in this passage, we're looking at three steps to acquire heavenly wisdom. James 4, 1 to 10, three steps to acquire heavenly wisdom. And let me sort of walk you back through this whole passage real quickly to get you up to verses 7 through 10, which is where we're going to finish this passage today. So the first step to acquire heavenly wisdom is found in verses 1 to 3, and this is to diagnose your desires. And so to truly grow in wisdom, we have to be able to figure out what is causing the conflict, what is causing the disruption in our relationships. And so we have to be able to look inside and diagnose our desires. Are the desires of our hearts God-honoring or are they self-serving? You can see this in James 4. Let me read verses 1 to 3 to you. 
causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. When we're driven by sinful, self-serving desires, then we have to recognize where those come from. We have to recognize that they are self-serving. And then we have to see that those desires actually put us in a position of spiritual adultery. And that's our second step to acquire wisdom. So verses 1 to 3, we diagnose our desires. And then in verses 4 to 6, we reject spiritual adultery. Listen to verses 4 and 5, following right on the heels of verse 3. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Spiritual adultery occurs when we turn our God-given affections and desires to anything other than God. And those become the controlling desires and the controlling passions of our lives. And you can't have it both ways. You can't serve God and serve the world. You can't be friends with the world and be friends with God. God has designed us to be loving, wanting, desiring creatures. And he demands our fullest and top priority affection. And so... He knows that in our brokenness, we can't do that ultimately. We're not there. We've been twisted and bent out of shape, and so our desires are focused on all the wrong things. And so how does God respond to that? Verse 6 tells us. But he gives more grace. And he gives us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he has done in new life through him. And so now our desires can be fixed on him and return to the place that they were designed to be fixed. But he doesn't just give this grace to everyone. There has to be a right disposition and a right posture. He's not going to give us grace to then turn that grace around and spend it on our own passions. That's where James quotes Proverbs chapter 3 here, verse 6. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The humble are those who recognize their need of grace. They recognize their propensity to sin and to desire other things, and they approach God humbly and in a repentant manner, and in need of his grace. The proud don't think they need it. The humble do. And therefore, they're positioned so that they can receive it. Now, this humility that he describes in verse 6, or that he talks about, this humble disposition of seeking God, this is what he's going to flesh out in verses 7 through 10 for us. And so this is the third step to acquire wisdom. We diagnose our desires. We reject spiritual adultery. We can't have it both ways. Friendship with the world, friendship with God. And so when we recognize those wrong desires, we know we can't have it both ways. Then the third step here is that we humbly repent and submit to God by grace, by his grace. 
This is in verses 7 through 10. This is the third step to acquire heavenly wisdom. Humbly repent and submit to God by grace. Now I want you to look with me at verse 7. And I want you to see how this is connected to verse 6, all right? Verse 7 begins, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. You would know, I think, that when you see that word, therefore, it's connecting back to what has come before it. And so James is connecting these commands that he's about to give back to this quote in verse 6, which it's a quote from Proverbs chapter 3. So James is essentially saying here, because God opposes the proud and because he gives grace to the humble, therefore we should obey the commands of verses 7 through 10. And so all of these commands are tied back to this reality that God gives grace to the humble and resists or rejects the proud. Now here's what's amazing about verses 7 through 10. In these four verses, there are 10 imperatives or commands. In these four verses, James is just peppering us with commands. He's telling us what to do in response to this reality in verse 6. If God truly gives grace to the humble, then the obvious question for you and I is, how do I pursue humility? I mean, I want God's grace. I want his kindness. And so how do I reject pride in my life? And how do I pursue humility? And I think James would say, and does say here, to pursue humility, make what Martin Luther said in his 95 Theses true of you. Make your Christian life one of continual repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make it a process, a continual process of humble repentance. So, this quote in verse 6, going back to that for just a second here. I think this quote, I said this I think last week, is the linchpin of the whole section. It's sort of the centerpiece of the section. And so what you could say is that the first part of this quote in verse 6, that God opposes the proud, goes back to verses 1 through 5. The proud are who we see described in verses 1 through 5. They're the ones who think they can have friendship with the world and friendship with God. They're the ones who use their God-given desires on themselves. Those are the proud. And so if the first part of this quote looks backwards, then I think the second part of this quote, but God gives grace to the humble, looks forward into verses 7 through 10. And so it's like the whole passage climaxes at this point and goes in each direction off of this quote from Proverbs chapter 3. So I think that's what's happening here. So what does humble repentance look like, practically speaking, in your life this week? Well, I want to show you that from verses 7 through 10, but let me, let me get a little bit technical with you here to help you see what James is doing with these 10 commands in verses 7 through 10. There's actually a structure to these commands and I want to show you that, and I think it'll help us to get to the heart of what real repentance looks like. So in verses 7 through 10, look down there with me. Verse 7, you see this command, submit yourselves therefore to God. So I think that's like the bookend on this side. 
on the front end. And then in verse 10, you get this other command, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so those are the two bookends, the bookend commands of this section. And then in the middle, you have three sets of commands. Let me show you these three sets here. And these three sets give us the big three ideas in repentance. And so if you're sitting there thinking, well, what does repentance look like? How do I practice this in daily life? These sets will help us to understand that. All right. So the first set you can see at the end of verse seven and into verse eight. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So you can see in that it's a set because you've got the opposites, right? You're resisting the devil and you're turning and fleeing and running to God. And so it's both sides of the coin there. And so that's the first set that James gave us, gives us to describe repentance. We'll talk about that in just a minute there. Run from Satan and into the arms of God. It's your actions and your attitudes. It's everything about you. And so those two are paired together, your hands and your heart. And then you can see the last set of commands here in verse 9. Be wretched or grieve. is probably a clearer word there. Grieve and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And so the idea here is to turn from your trivial laughter at sin and begin to take it and the consequences of sin seriously in your life. And we'll talk about that in a little more detail. So hopefully that helps you to see how James has structured these commands. They're not just sort of peppered out there, 10 commands. He bookends them, submit and humble go together, and then you've got these three sets in the middle. So let's take these sort of five sections of this and I want to walk you through them and help you to see what real and true repentance looks like in order so that we can practice this in daily life. So the first command here is in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. To submit yourselves to God is to take God's view of things. It's to arrange yourself under His authority. It's to listen to His perspective on everything including yourself. To submit to God is the exact opposite of pride and arrogance, right? What I mean, what is pride and arrogance? What do they say? They say, I know best. I am right. I have the right position on this, the right opinion of myself. But to submit yourself to God is to arrange yourself under him, under his rule. It's to recognize his authority. And this happens in our lives when we begin to see our sin for what it is. We don't dismiss it anymore. We don't ignore it. We don't bypass it. We begin to see it as God sees it. Submission is one of those things that is almost a bad word for many of us today. We don't like it. And it, honestly, it's easy to submit, to place myself under someone's something that I already want to do, when it's something that I already appreciate, 
comes under his authority and his perspective and submit to him. That's the first part of repentance, to take God's perspective on all of life. Secondly, repentance means that you and I resist the devil and draw near to God. In many ways, those are the same action. We turn from the influence of Satan and run to God and to draw near to him. Now, resisting the devil. So, this is not describing someone who is sort of walking around verbally telling the devil to go away. And, you know, sort of, sort of verbally mocking him and telling him to get out of here, right? To resist the devil is to resist the evil desires that crop up in my heart. And those evil desires ultimately come from Satan's influence in the world and his influence in sin and in my own heart. The brokenness and rebellion in my own heart. It's the same, he has the same, it's to resist the same perspective that he has, the pride and the arrogance and the self-centeredness. And so the promise here, amazingly enough, is that when we resist the devil, when we recognize those sinful desires that work in our hearts, and we, we resist that and push against that, James says that when that happens, the devil will flee from us. Now, interestingly enough, I don't think this happens instantaneously. I don't think James is saying, hey, if you'll just resist for one second, the evil desires in your heart and the influence of Satan in your life, then that evil desire will automatically go away. It'll be gone. Satan will flee from you. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what James is saying is as you submit to God's authority and resist the influence of Satan in your life and in your heart, and resist his perspective on the world, then I think over time, then those desires that you have will start to change. And Satan will not be able to influence you in the same way as regularly and as, as with as much influence as he has before. So I think that's what he's talking about here. Over the course of time, with sustained resistance to evil influence, those desires will have less and less sway over us. Now, of course, when you're resisting Satan and his influence, you are running to God and drawing near to God, which I think is a beautiful part of this, this picture. And in the biblical storyline, relational closeness to God is at the heart of everything that God does. I mean, you could, in many ways, summarize the biblical story as God's relational presence his creating us and drawing us close to him and his desire for us to love him and know him and experience him, that is his ultimate goal for us in his creation of us. It's always been at the heart of the biblical story. I mean, if you go back to Adam and Eve, they walked in the garden with God. They were in close relational proximity to him. Then they sinned and that relational proximity and that nearness was broken and was shattered and they were thrown out of the garden. They were no longer near to God. But then when God establishes the nation of Israel, one of the very first things he does is give them instructions for the tabernacle. Why? So that he can be 
among them, and he can dwell in their midst. And then after the tabernacle, they create the temple so that God is in their midst. And that's what sets them apart as a holy and distinct people. And then, of course, the incarnation is the greatest example of God coming into our midst and dwelling among us. And then when the Lord Jesus Christ leaves the earth, what does he do? He gives us his Holy Spirit to be in us and dwell with us and be near to us. And the ultimate end of our salvation described in Revelation is that God will come down and dwell on the new earth with his people in relational proximity. And so th this is the goal. It's to be close to God. It's to be in relationship with Him. It's to know Him and to love Him, to draw near to Him. Satan brings condemnation to us, and he brings shame over sin. Or Satan, satanic pride, refuses to acknowledge our wrongdoing. But James says here that drawing near to God requires confidence in the work of Christ. And so we resist the devil, we resist his arrogance, his pride, his accusations, his shame over sin, and we cling closely to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we draw near to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And that requires confidence in the gospel and in the work of Christ. Let me read to you what this looks like from Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, from the accusations of the devil over sin, and our bodies washed with pure water. That's the goal. Draw near through the work of Christ, and that is accessible to us. And that's a part of repentance. Resist the devil, resist his accusations, resist his arrogance, and instead acknowledge your sin and draw near to God through the work of Christ in full assurance of faith. We draw near because we are confident that we have been forgiven. Our sins have been separated from us as far as the east is from the west. And so we have open and full access to the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be honest about our sins because Christ has taken care of them completely and fully. That drawing near to God as part of repentance, not running from Him. Isn't that our tendency when we sin? It's to not read our Bibles. It's to not run to the Father. It's to sit in shame and sulk over our sin rather than applying the gospel to our hearts. But that confidence, I think, very naturally flows over into our next set of commands at the end of verse 8. Look there. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we've already mentioned the, the hands and the heart here. The actions and the attitudes that we have. So we are to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. And so repentance involves a change of actions and a change of attitudes. 
So we resist the work of Satan. We draw near to God in repentance and confidence in the work of Christ. And that confidence in our forgiveness results in a change, a cleansing of actions and of attitudes. Now we don't want to sin anymore because we've experienced the joy of forgiveness in Christ through this practice of repentance. So we cleanse our hands. We don't want to act in that way anymore. And we purify our hearts. We don't want the double-minded friendship with the world and an attempt to be a friend with God at the same time. Single-hearted, pure devotion to Christ. Repentance is both a heart change and a reorientation of our actions in a way that honors and pleases the Lord. So that's the second set here that describe our repentance. It's submission to God. It's resisting the devil and drawing near to, to God. It's cleansing of our actions and our attitudes, desire for, for a different walk and different way of moving through life. And then the third set here in verse nine, be wretched or grieve and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now this seems over the top, doesn't it? This is, this is a little too much. It's a little radical here, right? What James is describing, this set of commands here, it seems strange and exotic to respond to your sin in this way. But I think that like, when I read this and it seems, oh man, that's a little much, I think the reason it seems like that's a little much is not because James is over the top, but I think it's because we actually have a deficiency in our grasp of sin. We just don't take it seriously enough. We're not concerned enough with our desires and the pride and arrogance in our hearts. James says here that repentance involves a posture of the heart that is grieving over sin. It is mourning over the wrong that has been done, over the misplaced desires. There may even be a weeping that takes place because of the recognition of, of my rebellion against the Lord. This is a full coming to grips with the evil of sin. It's seeing it for what it is. It's seeing the evil of the action or the attitude and it's repenting or turning from and being grieved over the consequences that it has caused. Sin is never without consequences in my own life and in the lives of those around me. When I'm grumpy with a family member, there are consequences to that in the relationship with that family member. Sin impacts those around us more than we think. And so there's a, a recognition of that and a grieving and a mourning over the damage that has been done by the sin that is still resonant in my heart. And I know I treat sin far too lightly too much of the time. I sort of think that I can sort of sin and I can coddle these wrong desires and then whenever I want to, I'll sort of move away from those. But it doesn't work that way. Sin 
and all things will not be fine if we continue to cultivate sin. And that's what James wants us to do here, to see the seriousness of it and to mourn and to weep and to grieve over where we're at. We treat sin casually, and James says that genuine repentance doesn't treat sin casually. I mean, these are the same words that the Old Testament prophets use to describe the repentance of Israel. This is what they were supposed to do. And very often you will see, I think particularly in the example of David, you will see actual tears shed over sin. And you will see people laying prostrate before the Lord. Now that doesn't have to take place every time. But that's how significant they were to take rebellion and the brokenness of their hearts. James wants an actual hatred of sin. And that's what he's going for here. He wants us to look at sin and just be so disgusted by it that we want to turn away from it. Has that happened to you recently? Where you've seen sin in your heart, you've seen an attitude or an action expressed, and you sat down with the Lord and just been broken with that sin to the point where now you want to draw near to God. You don't want that anymore because of the damage that it does in your own heart and the hearts of others. Now I'm not talking about a hatred of sin out there in the culture, right? That's easy. It's easy to read a news story and to get annoyed and frustrated and angry over the sin out there in the culture. And there is a place for that. There is no doubt about it. But that's not what James is calling us to here. It's not a frustration over some political correctness that we see out there. It's not, a, it's not anger over encroachment on religious liberty. What this is, is an actual, felt, emotional hatred of the control that sin still has in my life. I don't want this anymore. I want to be done with it. And it brings me to tears to think about what is happening in my heart over my sin. And James says here, the pathway to wisdom and to wholeness is to not be flippant about our sin anymore. And that brings us to the back bookend of this section here in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This summarizes the whole section. If you had to, to put all of this together, this is what you say. Humble yourselves. Submit to his authority. Humble yourselves under him. And this also points us to the end result, which is beautiful. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The promise of exaltation is the outcome of this humble, repentant disposition. Of course, when you read this, it ought to remind you of the Lord Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself to the point of death. He served us and served the Father by humbling himself to the point of death. Now, of course, he wasn't repenting of sin, but he was giving his life for the good of another. And therefore, God highly exalted him. This theme is all over the Bible. Matthew 23 and verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, 
and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's the reversal of worldly wisdom. Knowledge your sin, humbly come to the Lord with it. Be broken over it, and he will exalt you. He will work in your heart to change you and bring you to spiritual wholeness. The pathway to greatness in God's eyes lies in humble repentance and service of others. And that is certainly counterintuitive to the message that we receive and we often believe in the broader culture today. So, I'd like to finish up this morning by a couple of doing a couple of things. I want to read to you to try to ground this in your hearts a little bit. I want to read to you a section from an old confession of faith because I think this summarizes repentance in a very clear way. So this is from the London Baptist Confession of Faith, all right? If you want to look that up, you're welcome to. This will help, I think, us crystallize what the Bible teaches on this, all right? Repentance begins the Christian life, and repentance and faith continue our growth towards spiritual wholeness in the Christian life. Here's what this confession of faith says, right? Saving repentance is an evangelical grace by which a person who is made to feel by the Holy Spirit the manifold evils of his sin and being given faith in Christ humbles himself over his sin with godly sorrow, detestation of his sin, and self-abhorrency. In such repentance... The person also prays for pardon and strength of grace and has a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit's power to walk before God and to totally please Him in all things. As repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives on account of the body of death and the motions of it, it is therefore every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins, particularly, specifically. Humble repentance, what James is describing here, humble repentance requires us to see our sin for what it is, to turn from our sin in hatred of our sin, and to turn to Christ with confidence in his forgiving grace. of the gospel every time we repent. We see our sin and then we turn from our sin and turn to a greater Christ. A Christ who offers forgiveness and cleansing and wholeness and a free conscience. A conscience free from sin. A Christ who offers joy and salvation. And I think 
without regular repentance, your Christian walk will sort of descend into this works-oriented dependence on yourself. Because if, if humble repentance brings us to humility, then not practicing this on a regular basis keeps us in a sense in a state of pride and arrogance. We don't think we need it. We're good enough. And so we never come to the work of Christ because eh, that's fine for other people, but I don't really need it because I don't really do that much wrong. Not really that sinful. But humble repentance keeps us in God's grace because we're focused on grace and because we know we need grace. And so we're continually running to the work of Christ and running to his grace. Work in our hearts now. It's in Christ's name and by his work.